0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Changemaking Connections. I'm so glad you're here. I want to acknowledge that this episode, along with several of our others, were recorded before the current violence and crisis in Gaza and Israel, which I know weighs heavily on many of our hearts. Though these episodes do not directly address that crisis, I do hope that they offer some insight, some inspiration and support for social justice leadership that is so needed in these times. Welcome to Changemaking Connections, the show where we talk with change leaders about how to support deep transformation in our lives, communities, and organizations. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I talk with change makers about the joys and challenges, the strategies and possibilities in working for social justice in a variety of contexts. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking to Srilata Bhatliwala, who is a Bangalore-based feminist activist, researcher, scholar, and trainer. She's worked for over two decades in grassroots movement building with marginalized urban and rural women in India, as well as research and policy advocacy. She then moved on to work internationally, doing grant making, scholarly work, building theory from practice, and capacity building of young women activists around the world. She is best known for bridging the worlds of theory and practice and for her writing on women's empowerment, women's movements and feminist approaches to movement building, monitoring and evaluation and feminist leadership she has published three books and multiple concepts, papers, articles, and research studies. She served on the board of over a dozen social justice organizations in India and internationally. She is currently Senior Advisor, Knowledge Building, CREA, Senior Associate, Gender at Work, and Honorary Professor of Practice at the University of London. She now rejoices in the role of feminist grandmother, both in women's movements and to her four feminist grandchildren. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That last sentence makes me smile. Yes,
1: it has that effect on everyone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your work has just been so inspiring to me over the years, and I'm honored to get a chance to talk with you. You've been doing this work for a really long time and probably been both met with both the challenges and the inspirations of doing the work that you do. So I'm curious about what keeps bringing you back to the work.
1: To answer that question, Beth, I'd have to say uh, that I got an insight at a very, very early stage of my working life, and that insight, I think, is the essence of what keeps me engaged and keeps bringing me back to the work. And that is when I was transitioning out of my first job where I worked in a community health organization for eight years and was moving on to start our own initiative with a group of friends and fellow travelers to work with the urban poor in Bombay City, which is where I lived at that time, to work with people living on the pavement slums and in the slums. And I was kind of upset because my boss wasn't upset that I was leaving. And I was like, you know, he hasn't said, oh, how sad, or would you reconsider? It's almost like he's happy I'm leaving. So one day, he was giving me a ride home so that I didn't have to take the bus. And I just came right out and said to him, why are you not more upset that I'm leaving? He said, oh, no, no, I'm very happy that you're leaving and that you're moving on to do this wonderful thing. He said, you know, let me tell you a secret. You should never be committed to an organization. You should be committed to a cause. And you can serve that cause from many, many different locations. So I think in a way, my whole life journey in my work has been about exploring How can I contribute to the cause best at this stage of my life from this place that I'm sitting in or with these yearnings uh, of what I'd like to do so that I don't feel guilty, for instance, that, oh, you know, I should still be doing grassroots activism. Hell no. There are thousands and thousands of young activists who are out there doing that work with the kind of excitement and energy that I had to do it 25 years ago, which I don't have now. But hey, how many people are there who've done that, learned from that, that, you know, solid, grounded, actually building movements, working with real people who are severely marginalized and can also now build theory from the point of view of practice, and who can now support and train younger activists with the wisdom of whatever you learned. And if some of it is no longer relevant, that's fine too, they can throw it out. But I love being in new roles. I think my dad was also an inspiration to me in this sense. Because he used to say that if you don't reinvent yourself every 7 to 10 years and do something new where you're starting as a learner, you're going to become a horrible, conceited, know-it-all who thinks you're the expert on everything. And you're going to stop learning. So always move out of your comfort zone and move into a new role where you have to become a learner. And at the same time, you can bring to it what you've learned from the past, if that makes sense.
0: Oh my gosh, so much wisdom in that, aligning with the cause, not necessarily the organization, allowing for the learning and life journey to develop the different kinds of wisdom we need at different stages of our lives and in different stages of the movements. You you mentioned, you know, if things are no longer relevant, right? The movement always also changing. Just so much insight there, so much insight. Also
1: because then it becomes a two-way process of learning because when you put yourself in a new role and you're experimenting and trying to see what can you bring to this role You are giving a lot, but you're also learning. So a lot of unlearning is also what I've done. So for example, the amount of unlearning I've done by working with supporting young activists, because as I said, now I like to see myself as a grandmother in the movement. So stepping back, moving out of leadership roles, moving out of direct leadership roles, Letting others lead, supporting from the back. That's what you do as a grandma, right? Uh, And I, I got this insight when my first grandchild was born, which was 18 years ago. She's off to university now. That, oh, wow, this is like what I should be doing in the moment, you know? I don't have to be the person doing the primary caregiving, but I can support the caregivers, you know? So that's the thing, because I've unlearned a lot from them, for example, about the power of virtual movement building, you know, the power of communication, uh, the whole digital space. I'm not romanticizing it or glamorizing it, but I'm saying these are all dimensions that didn't exist. But I'm also, I've also unlearned and had to relearn how do you do? Uh, Movement building and organizing of very excluded and stigmatized people in an era where there's so much repression, where they don't have the kind of space, the democratic space for, for example, protests that we had when we were young activists. You know, we take out a march at the drop of a hat. There's so much surveillance now. And so I'm learning from young activists, how do you negotiate this new, much tougher political environment uh, in doing this kind of work?
0: Mm. I love the multi-directional support and reciprocity and learning that you're talking about. And I'm curious, based on some of the things you've just offered, how are you thinking about leadership and social justice leadership in this time?
1: yeah so i think the f- the first thing that i've learned or or that i've come to a great deal of clarity about is about what is leadership yeah and i think i've moved so so far away from uh, most of the conventionally accepted definitions of leadership which are first of all very much focused on the individual leader is an individual and two i think especially in the social justice arena very much focused on this heroic valorous change maker who's kind of leading you know others in the process of change this visionary so you know the the hero the savior the shiro the visionary i really react now very strongly to these images of leadership because i think whether we like whether we acknowledge it or not or whether we recognize it or not these uh, notions of leadership are very embedded also in a certain kind of social political context and sets of ideologies for example it's a very patriarchal model of leadership right so i now tend to think of leadership as as a process where we come together with other people around a shared vision of social justice of you know equality of a better world, of a sustainable planet, whatever it is that, you know, fires the fire in your belly, but that it brings you together with people to build a kind of shared vision and then to inspire in each other and activate within each other different forms of power to work for that change. So really is not about the individual and their power to inspire and make change but it's about how does this innate power that I strongly believe we each have in different forms and they get expressed and manifested in different ways but how do we activate that power within each other and be with each other in a kind of a shared journey of change. For me, that's what leadership is looking like uh, right now. And I know it sounds a bit sort of warm and fuzzy, but I've been fortunate enough to have experienced this so frequently. I see the difference is when you don't start off by in any sense, including within yourself, proclaiming yourself as a leader or setting for yourself the ambition of being a leader. That's almost the way to kill this. So if you don't focus on leadership, but focus on the change you want to make with others, I think you end up leading actually differently and it's not
0: an individual process at all. Oh, wow. I'm just. I'm having all these visions of communities together in kind of a network, and like synopses going off as we inspire one another, Absolutely. and we connect with the fire within us, and they cre- create a a kind of collective fire of mobilization and inspiration and change. It's really and I've inspiring. seen
1: grassroots women do this, yeah. and I've seen them struggle with the conventional model of leadership and say, "No, how can we?" See, because one of the first things I did as an activist, as grassroots activist, is to push ourselves and the communities we worked in whom we brought together to experiment with collective leadership and with rotating leadership. And people were very skeptical about it at first. It was like, no, how is this going to work? And then we had real challenges. We had people who had been in the leadership collective who didn't want to step down who sometimes tried to sabotage those who came into the role and they had to sit back and they were like, oh yeah, I'm going to see how she's going to do it. I'm not going to share my insights or whatever. So then all that has happened. I'm not saying this is a gloriously, you know, glitch-free uh, process. It isn't. It's it's quite painful letting go of power, as we see all around us, everywhere. Nobody likes letting go of power. And if you've been poor and marginalized and invisible and voiceless all your life, it's even harder when you get a little bit of power to let it go is very hard. But then when you begin to see that if you join together, other people plug in your weaknesses, you know, they bring to the table things that you can't. And that so together you get more done, you get closer to your goals then it slowly starts to shift. So it's actually about creating a whole new culture of leadership and a whole new practice of leadership that's very emergent, is the favorite word these days, right? It's it's very experimental. It's It's hard. Things break down. You have to rebuild. But you have to somehow hold on to the belief that, we can actually create something different because this existing model always ends up becoming elitist. It becomes oppressive. It becomes exclusionary. And it becomes a power trip. And there's all this mythology. So so what I've done, actually, I I can share a few of them with you if there's time. I've developed a bunch of myths, counter- realities about leadership. So I I consider these the sort of widespread myths about leadership that need to be dismantled. So that's where I've come in mm-hmm. trying to offer a different approach to leadership.
0: Wonderful. We can put that in some of your other amazing papers in um, the, the show notes. You've written so many great insights and ebooks. Maybe share one or two myths if you feel inclined to here. Uh, sure.
1: I guess the first one, which is a bit controversial, but it's very important to name that first, is the belief that because I head, say, a feminist organization, I'm a feminist leader. Or because I lead, a, a formally lead a social justice organization, I am a socially just leader. I'm sorry, but it's not that easy. Because why then are feminist and social justice organizations so full of toxic dynamics and toxic power practices, right? So being a transformative leader requires us to actually first address our own internalized practices of power and that the understand that the process of transformation begins here with us with each of us and in the organization you know so it's not about you know I'm this feminist so how can I be practicing power toxically? Well of course you would because you're carrying lots of baggage that's internalized right So it's about really understanding that just because you lead an organization that has these values or these goals, that you reflect those values and goals in your practices as a leader, that's a myth. So it's like, you know, get real. That second myth, which is very widespread, is that leadership is about power, authority and control. And actually, that's, to me, the lowest Form of leadership. In fact, that's patriarchal leadership because then the leader needs followers, they need subordinates, yeah? The leader and the led. So that's for me not what leadership should be about. And then I think this is my favorite one in a way that leadership can only be practiced from a position of formal power. But it's not true. You see people doing amazing things from wherever they're located. And I've seen this repeatedly, not just in my own grassroots work, but even subsequently in the work of many younger colleagues. They discover this inner power they have to make change. And they're leading from that place. They're not, and me, I mean, I think I'm a good example of this. I don't head anything. I'm not director of anything. I'm nobody's boss. I feel more powerful today than I ever did. And I'm actually practicing leadership because Beth Perilla, whom I didn't know from Eve, right? Says, oh, your work has been so valuable to me. See, so it's really not about I have to wait to get into that chair, into that office, into that seat to lead. It's not about that.
0: No. And if you go back to the image that you generated for me earlier of like a collective community and everybody finding their gifts and then co-creating the world that doesn't currently exist that we want to create that is more just, more liberatory, more equitable. It needs all of us to spin that web to create that reality. You have skills I don't, so-and-so has skills neither one of us do, and insights, different perspectives that we need. So empowering and creates really a space for all of us in this work.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, you've mentioned leadership as a practice a couple of times, and you've also mentioned the friction that can happen, um, that collective leadership is not all simple and smooth. You've also mentioned the unlearning that all of us have to do in this work. Have you developed or experienced, or do you have any practices that you find really helpful to support you or the people you work with in this transformation journey?
1: Well one is, you know, I as I mentioned, I focus a lot on why internal transformation is a very important part of social transformation. Because in fact that's one of my myths that social change means about them, not means out there that I have to make change. You know, the old feminist adage the personal is political and the political is personal. So I think I have uh, taken that very much to heart. So one just to give an example, one of the practices that's been very helpful to me is a uh, spiritual practice. It so happens I have a guru and she found me. I didn't go looking for her. But one of the things that all spiritual traditions, whichever pathway you choose, that they emphasize is confronting your ego and learning to stand outside outside yourself and witness yourself as you are perceived and experienced by others. And learning to confront when you're responding from a place of ego, rather than from a place of compassion or passion for the cause, you know, you're not responding so much from there, but because you're feeling threatened and we are all very vulnerable like that. Our egos play that role of making us want to protect ourselves and protect our, you know, standing, our stature, whatever it is. So that's one practice that I found very useful. A second more sort of practical uh, thing is in Whenever I was in a formal leadership role, I uh, learned this actually from the strangest source. Uh, There was a series of management books uh, written, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. They were very popular. They were called something like Management Secrets of Attila the Hun. It was the Attila the Hun series. And this one was called Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. And it said that one of the things you have to do if you're a smart leader is to make sure at all times that there are two people who are appointed and empowered to observe you as a leader and to give you feedback with no consequences, no cost. I mean, they can't be fired because they said, you really behaved obnoxiously in that meeting, or whatever, whatever is this tough feedback, but or who can tell you, hey, that was really well done. So I've tried to do that consistently, and now what I do is I try and recreate that in whatever settings I'm working in, because I have to now be very conscious of how much power I wield in any situation simply because of my history, my experience, what I've done, how I can overwhelm or intimidate without any intention of doing. So I try to make sure that I have a couple of people in any particular situation who I empower. Now, initially, of course, they're hesitant. They don't necessarily use this power. So you have to push a bit. You have to show that you're serious about it. But that's also very effective. And then I think organizationally, there's lots of things you can do. You know, I think the uh, anonymous 360 degree assessments, they are a great tool. It's such a simple device, but it's a great way of figuring out whether you're Doing okay or not?
0: Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. You're speaking to leaders being accountable to people around them and recognizing that the power structures in many spaces, whether it's formal or informal power structures, often mean that the people around a leader don't, won't give honest feedback. Um, and you need people who will hold that leader accountable and speak truth to power especially if we're yes. trying to merge from the more traditional individual leader to a more collective leadership idea.
1: And in fact, you know, I think it's it's really important to invest organizational time, which we tend not to do because we're so busy changing the world and there's no time to look within and look at the internal world of the organization or the collective or whatever, yeah but of actually creating processes where we develop a culture of giving each other, you know, feedback. To learn to do that in a way that's compassionate and from a place of love and forgiveness rather than tearing each other down, you know. And here I found that modeling that yourself is the first place from which you have to begin. So I used my formal leadership authority like that. I used it to model a different way of treating each other so that people would say, well, if she, you know, who's the boss and she's so powerful, etc., can do this without making us feel bad, then maybe I can also... So it actually gradually seeped in, and, and the culture began to change, and they began to use those spaces very much more constructively to grow. The other thing that I think is very important, which I forgot to mention sorry, Beth, I'm going on That's and on. It's okay. No. Is uh, that you also have to be cognizant. Of the unconscious forms of power that you bring to any space and the often unconscious or unrecognized forms of victimhood and the negative dynamics of always feeling I have to be the victim that you bring to any space. Now, you've read my work and you know I've talked a lot about this power under phenomenon, etc. But you know. I didn't recognize until I created these processes where I would say, we would do play these games when, say, okay, I enter a room and then everybody in the group has to say, okay, so what did you feel when this person entered the room? And I would be shocked because they would say, oh, it was like a queen entering the room. And I'd be like, who, me? But that was the reality. And then you have to realize you're carrying the power of your class, your education, in my case, caste, maybe it's race or ethnicity, whatever is the social hierarchy of the society in which you're functioning, you come bringing all those things as parts of your identity, whether you want to recognize them or not, but they affect other people. And similarly, you come bringing a perpetual sense of oppression and victimhood, and that's become the source of your sense of power, beating people on the heads with it. And that also becomes a very negative force. It's as negative a force as the unconscious sexism or classism or racism that you bring.
0: No, this is really interesting. And it strikes me the, the ways that an internalized oppression or internalized superiority can impact the way we show up and the narratives we tell about ourselves and others. And that part of, and that we, you know, it's important to honor the pain of, of oppression. And it's also important to create spaces and communities where we can heal that and let go of some of those more limiting beliefs of self and others and begin to co-create more empowering, liberating ones. There's something you said, yeah, there's something you said earlier that really struck me. Was it, there are just so many insightful things about creating. Oh, I know what it was. I can imagine some of the spaces that I've worked in people being very skeptical or cynical about this idea of giving feedback with love and compassion when there are real still existing power hierarchies, organizationally and even societally. And that what strikes me is that going back, while that skeptical cynicism has a place, it's it's well-earned in terms of how the more traditional model of leadership works. We also, I think, need to be able to let some of that go and trust the process if we want to co-create something better. And um, it seems to me that commitment to the cause that you started with is one of the ways we can do that and kind of trusting that we all have a role in this work.
1: And if I could just interject, because you've you've put it beautifully, but what I would add is we trust in the process and we have to trust the collective and the power of the collective. Because if a person continuously violates the norms uh, of that process that you're trying to create that shift away from traditional processes. And, you know, it's like maybe it's a boss who who's sort of doing all this, but whose heart isn't in it, him, her, they, whoever. I think you have to trust the power of the collective to finally sit down and say, hey, you know what? You're just playing a game here. And it's not just her or him or they who are experiencing it that way. It's all of us. So I've seen that sort of confrontation happen and that changes it. So it's trusting the process. Yes. Keeping the process up consistently. That's very important. It's not like abandoning it because, oh, there was this disastrous one last weekend. God, I'm never going to do that again. Can't abandon it. You have to give it a fair try, but also you have to trust the collective. And that's why the consistency is important because the collective gains power and gains, begins to internalize these norms. Only if you consistently keep that space going.
0: And how do you empower, how do you make sure, and the you here, I mean collective you, not singular you, how do you... make sure that people in that collective feel empowered to voice hey you're just playing a game here or this doesn't align with our values
1: what i found very important in the initial stages because this is something where you're as i said you're really creating a whole new culture that people haven't been trained or equipped to engage in so it's actually very frightening Especially for some people who come, who, as you said, have a long history of experiencing oppression and almost every space they occupy private, public, every. And you really need external facilitators. And I found that very useful until that kind of gets set, you know, until you set the culture. So in our grassroots movement building program when we were trying to build the collective leadership system, we had uh, external facilitators and one uh, of the sets of facilitators, and I really look back and I think, wow, that was smart. That was so smart we brought those guys in. They were theater people. So they were not activists or facilitators, you know, OD facilitators. They were theater people. And I brought them in saying, listen, can we use some of these theater techniques? Because I knew that if you kind of sit people down and say, okay, now look, this is an equal space and everybody has equal voice and all. And they're going to be like, yeah, yeah. What kind of sucker do you think I am? You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So we used uh, theater techniques. So we used uh, Frarian what is it called, liberation, liberation Theater? Yeah, yeah. And that technique, so you, you enact a story up to a point, right? And then you invite people to come in and take it forward. And then they would get people to get together and create a scenario of what they've ex- always experienced, say, at home. I'm the younger daughter in the family, and so what have, how have I been treated? What food did I get? And, you know, women would come out with incredible things about, I wasn't allowed to learn to ride a bicycle. And look how symbolic that is, that you can't have mobility. You're a girl. You have to be constantly under someone's control. Your mobility is under someone's control. So they'd use all kinds of interesting techniques, And that created such a different atmosphere in that space. So I feel, and this is something I'm learning a lot from a young colleague who I consider now one of my sheroes and she's one of my gurus, art activism, you know, using all kinds of alternate methods So that we move away from the spoken word, which is, of course, my comfort zone and sitting in my head all the time. But really uh, use film, use theater, music, posters as forms of expression, but also methods to shift people into a different kind of possibility. Mm.
0: I love that. I just think art in its various forms is so powerful and there are so many different ways to use it to both shift, shake up the status quo, pause us in our habitual actions, but also open creativity to imagine different ways of being, different ways of knowing, different worlds we can build. I love that. I also, I also want to make sure that we get to the question you posed. Um, one of the things I like in this podcast is that I want to make sure that the guests bring their own topics and questions, and you asked a really powerful one about uh, insights that we can offer about the struggle to balance your private and public roles and living your values in both. What would do? What would we do differently if we could in that balance, especially when we're committed to social justice and it's not a nine to five job, right? How do we balance public and private roles while living values in both? Do you have any thoughts to start that off?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that practicing. My beliefs, my 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 ideology, my commitment to equality and justice was much much easier in my work space than in my private space. Uh, it was far more challenging in to f- even figure out how. practice it some things just came instinctively whether it was in my marriage as a parent and you know the fates decided to give me a son and a daughter so I had to raise two kids as a feminist mother and I didn't know half the time what the hell I was doing and i was very torn between you know traditional expectations and the values i i believed in so what i did what i ended up doing is i always worked from the time they were little i was part time till they were about 3 or so and went to school and then sort of more and more uh, full time and that i squared with myself ideologically, that raising screwed up kids who feel they're your lowest priority is not a very feminist thing to do. And that's not a very socially just thing to do either. Because you want to contribute to good human beings to the world, right? People who believe in these values and work for them themselves. I found surprisingly that it was far easier to raise my son as a feminist than my daughter. So that was a very interesting. And my husband was a full on, hands on dad. Luckily, he wasn't one of these people who felt, okay, that's your department kind of thing. But I found that the forces and the pressures of conforming to patriarchal norms were so much stronger on my daughter. And I know this is not just something that was. Particular to my culture or my location as an Indian or South Asian. Because I've spoken to many friends around the world who felt similarly. It's just a different set of pressures like, why aren't you dating? Why don't you have a boyfriend by, you know, 13 and a half? And why haven't you had sex? And, you know, why are you wearing these clothes? Or why aren't you more girly? Whatever. It's just it's so hard to support a young woman to feel free to break these, these norms or break these expectations or challenge them or be different, just to be yourself. And I remember them playing games, brother and sister, from the time he was two, he wanted to be a pilot. He is a pilot, by the way, my son. (laughs) And they would play these games. And so my sisters, for instance, would help me out By for his birthday. They wouldn't give him a plane. They would give him a tea set or a set of uh, miniature dolls. And then he had a few planes as well. So he'd fly the plane and then have a tea party. With the dolls. And then he'd get very upset with his sister because she would say things like, Now you be the pilot and I'll be the air hostess. And she, he would say, Why? You can be the pilot, I'll be the air hostess. And she said, No, you're a boy, you have to be the pilot. You know, there were all these sort of moments that still stay in my head. But it was a struggle. At different points in time. And then a personal struggle, and I'd just like to end with that, was, okay, so I did a reasonably good job with the full support uh, of my uh, partner in raising two nice human beings, both very staunch feminists at heart, as my daughter-in-law and grandchildren would tell you. What I just realized when my daughter, who's my younger child, was sort of finishing school, is that I had never done the single girl in the city, working girl in the city bit ever. I went straight from my postgraduate training, got married, had kids, you know. I'd never understood if I could live on my own, be by myself, manage my taxes and my, you know, money, whatever. So I took the very controversial decision at the age of 42 that I would look for a job abroad and go off on my own and work for a few years away to figure out if I could do it, if I could... Can I look after myself? Can I manage my own money? Can I... You know, I just didn't know because I never had that experience. This sounds ridiculous to young women these days. No, But I think to a lot of young women, the idea of getting married straight after college and then, you know, that's like so 1950s, right? <laughs> well, I applied... Uh, I told my kids, told my husband, everybody said, yeah, yeah, you must do it. Poor guy, I don't think he seriously thought it would happen, but it did. I applied for a job in the Ford Foundation in New York, and I got it against all odds. I mean, what were they thinking? But they hired me. And then the reality hits that I have to do this now. I've got this job. I'm going. The reality hit him. It was terribly hard for him because it coincided with our younger child leaving the home, the empty nest. Boy, was it empty because the child left and then the wife left. Everybody, of course, assumed, okay, this marriage is over. That's why she's leaving. It was never about him. It was about me. It was about building my journey of self-discovery. So I did it, and lots of struggles, lots of heartache, loneliness, and lots of strength that I never knew I had. Seven years between the Ford Foundation and the Kennedy School, but three and a half years full-time, and three and a half years, I was three months there, three months back in India, so it wasn't that tough. But that was a big part also of the personal uh, journey of learning, but also of self-affirmation and finding an identity of my own that was not always, you know, somebody's mom and somebody's wife or somebody's boss, just being by myself.
0: Mm, That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. That was really brave of you too, in terms of like, it see, it strikes me as perhaps being countercultural in a lot of different spaces that someone yes, in that situation. Yes, because my U.S.
1: colleagues were actually very shocked that my husband wasn't planning to come and join me. And that we were not planning this as a way of settling in the U.S. either.
0: <laughs> That's so beautiful. What was one thing you really, you mentioned some general things, but was there one thing you learned about yourself in that process?
1: Oh, such a tough question, Beth. Mm. I learned that I was a lot more courageous and gutsy than I actually ever knew. Because I faced a lot of situations in the U.S. that were completely new and that I had never faced on my own. I mean, faced at home, much less on my own, you know. So I think I discovered I have a huge well of of courage and determination. I wasn't conscious of
0: before. Mm. That's beautiful, and the world needs that, I think. (laughs) And for our listeners, maybe they're trying to find their way into change-making, maybe they're trying to tap into that strength that you just described, you know, you deepened. Do you have any advice for them in their cultivating their own voice, their own path for change-making?
1: I think... I don't want to you know I I don't like giving advice it yes. feels a bit pompous <laughs> as
0: soon as that word was out of my mouth that was like, I know, wrong I, word. Know, I know I, but I know you don't. Yeah. I knew,
1: I know you didn't mean it in that sense but I think what I would do is to say don't be afraid to put yourself in uncomfortable and unfamiliar situations and processes, because you almost always come out of them with a lot of strength and wisdom that you didn't have you went in. I would say, you know, don't worry about succeeding and failing. Get out of these ridiculous, false paradoxes, you know, or these uh, false binaries that, you know, success, failure, top, bottom, ahead, behind, I don't know, whatever. You know, they are so ridiculous. They're all constructed to make us feel, to A, make us compete, and to to always make us feel inadequate. So that wherever you reach, you fail, there are others who've reached. You know, it's just such a losing game. And it's so diminishing internally. And I think I would also really support people to explore ways of periodically unplugging and detoxing. You know, I think that's really great. And that's something that's receiving so much more importance today than it did in my time. In my time, you were valorized because you killed yourself doing the work. Oh, all my life, I worked for the cause. I don't have a penny in the bank. I don't have a house to live in. I didn't care about my person. You know, for God's sake, don't get trapped in that paradigm of that's the greatest kind of social justice activist there ever was. It's so internally destructive. So I think, you know, exploring, there's a wonderful group who reached out to me and i've become very much a part of their collective though i'm the only older person in the collective it's called the feminist hiking collective
0: oh i love it
1: so do visit their website so what they do is they organize these hikes and these climbs you know like a one week or 10 day expedition into nature but the reason they do it is A, to help you reconnect with the natural world and to listen and hear it and feel it in the ways that we tend not to or that we ignore when we live, especially in cities, but also to help you look within and find sort of new sources of energy and inspiration, compassion and love from the group, experience collective living. It's just wonderful. I think it's really good too. And and in the U.S., you know, there are a lot of initiatives now. There's something called Root, Rise, Pollinate, which you may have heard of. In fact, I'm going to be recording a program with them next week on new governance practices and stuff like that. There is something called Healing Solidarity, so there are there's a lot of stuff now going around uh, the world where people are really seriously focusing on how to be connect internal transformation with social transformation, and how we can't be damaged internally and create uh, a healthy you know society or world because we carry our damage, we carry our pain, our angst into those spaces. So I think there's a lot going on out there. And I wish some of this had been available to me in the early days of my activism. I think it would have really been wonderful. So I would encourage people to embrace some of those things and try them out.
0: Well, those some beautiful. We'll put the links in the show notes and it strikes me that in addition to carrying our Our damagedness, if we over, if we burn out in the social justice work, we also get to carry our wholeness and our healed selves into the community and the work. And so, recognizing that taking those times to reconnect uh, to ourselves and others is part of the work, but it doesn't have to feel like work, it can be resourcing and nourishing. And that that is part of creating a better world, I think. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Sridhartha, for taking the Thanks, time. Beth. This was wonderful. I really
1: enjoyed this conversation. I'm sorry I talked so much. Oh, what? no.
0: No, no. That's why we invited you. We want to hear you <laughs> in dialogue, of course, that, that there's a lot of knowledge and insight that comes and also connection. So thank you so much. Thank
1: you. You're wonderful at this. And I'll be a regular listener. <laughs>
0: Thank you.